The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. It's Beyond Reality, and I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight. We've got a really interesting show tonight because I like it when we delve off into pop culture topics, and we're going to do that tonight with our guest, Robert Sullivan. He's written a couple of books about cinema symbolism, symbolism in movies and cinema, and we're going to talk about that, but he's also written about Freemasonry. And we'll, we're going to talk about that, too. So a lot of great topics tonight, and it's going to be an excellent conversation. Looking forward to this. Uh, I do want to take a minute and chat about what's coming up with the coronavirus. This is um, something that I'm trying to determine whether or not I should be concerned. Now, you all know that I have travel plans that may be affected here. I'm I'm really concerned about that. And again, not not the, 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 the travel and being exposed part. I I do think there are ways you can limit your susceptibility however i'm travel i'm concerned about travel uh being banned i'm uh you know i'm I'm planning on going to europe and italy has some significant uh, infections and germany is now sounding some alarm bells i'm supposed to go to holland and then uh pick up my son and we're going to travel around germany a little bit and it does i just i don't know i maybe maybe in three weeks when this is all supposed to happen this will be done and we won't be talking about it anymore. I don't know. But you know, I just did a quick look at what's going on. And just looking around the world, Saudi Arabia has cut travel to uh, some of the holiest sites of Islam because of this, which is a bit of an unprecedented move. South Korea has increased penalties for people that are breaking the quarantine because South Korea has the largest number of infections outside of China. South and Central America are now increasing their efforts to identify sick people that come through airports as they just had their first case identified in South America. The Japanese prime minister is calling for schools to be closed for weeks to lower the chance of spreading the the disease. Iran has loosened restrictions on imported goods. Now, you know when Iran does things like this that it's serious. Iran has also been a bit of an epicenter for this disease. So they've reduced restrictions on imported goods to allow for more medical supplies to come in. In California, here in the United States, a new case has been identified that doesn't seem to be linked to travel. That's a first here and also something that creates some concern. Total at this point, if we can believe... What the Chinese are telling us, there have been 82,000 people infected with this virus. And of those 82,000, there has been 2,800 deaths. So how deadly is this disease, this virus? It's kind of undetermined. And the numbers seem to change depending on where you are a little bit. In China, the rate of death has been about 2 to 4% of people infected with the virus have died. And uh, most at risk seem to be the elderly or people with heart and lung disease and other compromising conditions. Uh, just to give you a comparison, remember the SARS epidemic? 10% of the people infected with SARS um, died. But SARS didn't seem to be as contagious as this coronavirus does. And, you know, we talk, we, we do a comparison with the flu quite a bit because obviously the flu is a very, very uh, significant infection. It kills a lot of people. Something in the neighborhood of, I don't, I don't know what the figures are, twenty six to 70,000 people in the United States every year. But the difference with the flu is that the number of infections is significantly higher. So, therefore, the percentage of people 
that actually die from the flu is less than 1%. In fact, it is 0.1%, one-tenth of 1%. And, of course, it does affect most of the elderly and the and people with compromised uh, immune systems. So, you know, it's, it's not anything to be um, taken lightly for sure. Uh, but one of the things that bothers me right now, and I don't know what you think, but it seems like we've got politicians jumping out of their desks to get in front of a microphone to make this a political issue, and that drives me crazy. When we had the Ebola situation under President Obama, politicians came together and fit and solved the problem. And in this case, that's not happening as the parties have been reversed. We don't get political on this show very often. In fact, we try not to at all. But it's ridiculous and it's shameful to see what some of these politicians are doing and how they're using this particular circumstance to try to get some kind of political edge. These people are despicable. You decide who I'm talking about. I'm not going to name any names, but man, they are the worst. And all of them should not only be ashamed of themselves, but they should be voted out of office immediately. There's elections coming up. Get those idiots out of there. The other question here is, is the media making more of this than it really is? That's possible. You know, I, I mentioned it the other night. Remember, it was last night. I don't know. But, you know, in the days of uh, no weather channel, we'd get our weather reports and we'd hear about things like hurricanes or tornadoes or whatever. And, you know, they weren't any less deadly. That's for sure. However, they weren't so sensationalized. There wasn't this 24-7 coverage, which made everybody get whipped up into a frenzy. And the same thing goes for cable channels, news channels. You know, is it because they need to talk about something that they're talking about this nonstop, which is making all of us get whipped up into a panic? I don't know. Maybe that's true. I don't want to downplay this because I think the jury's still out. I think the best way forward here is pragmatism. Let's not get in a panic. However, let's be prepared. And I think that's what's happening at our federal level. Um, on a local level, I think we need to, uh, you know, just do things that are smart. I wash our hands. I'm, if I end up traveling, uh, if this stuff happens and I actually get to go on my trip, which starts in Canada and then it goes to uh, Holland, uh, I'm going to be wearing a mask when I'm on the plane. I don't care what it looks like. Uh, it's a little uncomfortable because you know, if you wear those things, you get a little moisture buildup, whatever. But I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, you know, take those risks. It's silly for a, what, a 50-cent mask? Why not? Anyway, I'm off my soapbox now. I just, I just, uh, I'm curious as to what you think. Uh, I'll watch chat and see what your comments are as we uh, continue the program tonight. Okay, couple things. Just, uh, just to look ahead at what we've got coming up tomorrow night. Booze, brews, and bros is a fifty-fifty possibility here. Monday night, Paul Wallace will be with us to talk about God or extraterrestrials. Are they one and the same? Are they connected? We'll find out. Tuesday, Tim Cohen will be here to talk about prophecy. And then on Wednesday night's program, Shelly Kerr will be talking about karma and also pets past lives. Do pets have past lives? If we're to believe what our guest last night, um, Jeffrey Jowett said, pets have souls as well. So why wouldn't they have past lives as, in addition to that, right? So Shelly will talk about that on Wednesday night. Um, go to YouTube. This is particularly for my podcast listeners. Go to YouTube and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's just uh, J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. It's easy to find. 
if you go to YouTube, there are something in the neighborhood of 550 back episodes of the show on YouTube for your enjoyment. There's no fee or anything. It's all free. And the bonus content is there as well. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please look for the podcast version of the show. It makes it really convenient because once you subscribe, it downloads to your smart device automatically. All the episodes are there. If you don't listen to them, fine. They scroll away over time as new ones are added. But they're all there for you uh, in case you're on a trip or you're driving somewhere. You want to listen to a good interview. um, They're there for you to do that. I, I really enjoy listening to podcasts when I travel. It makes the time go much quicker. I'm tired of listening to the same old music. And radio stations these days are all formulaic. Form, formulatic, formulaic, right? <laughs> so they all sound the same. And um, yeah, you can you can do the serious X Men. I don't I don't know. I'm just kind of musicked out. Uh, I don't like new music. And while I love my old music, I just can't listen to it all the time. So podcasts are a great option. They make time go faster. Travel is much easier, and it's informative and sometimes fun. So find on your favorite uh, podcast platform: Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify. Uh, wherever you happen to look, it's uh, Beyond Paranormal is the name of the podcast. And uh, again, that is also free. And the final thing I'll ask you for is if you enjoy the program, you know, we've reduced the number of breaks we take significantly. We don't have nearly as much commercial content as we used to have. And that was intentional because we felt that interrupted the flow of the program significantly. But we still have to you know, pay our bills here. So if you, if you um, have any inkling to support the program, we'd appreciate you going to patreon and finding joha j-o-h-a-w joha and become a subscriber there to help support the uh, you know the expenses associated with putting this this program on and i know it seems uh, like there aren't there aren't a lot but there are it's actually we've got slick eddie in there boy i tell you that guy just demands everything you know plus uh, phone lines and stuff like that whatever just it's not not required and not begging it's just if it's something that you think you could do that would be highly appreciated and we we obviously will recognize people that do that in addition we've got some special things in the works that will be um, patreon subscriber only things so if you're part of that group you're going to get access to some things that uh, are uh, not everybody will have access to it'll be special content for you alone so that's going to do it for our our uh, introduction here we're going to go to break and we're going to bring our guest in uh tonight we're going to be talking with robert sullivan we're going to be talking about Freemasonry and um, cinema symbolism. A couple of very diverse topics, but it's going to be a lot of fun. That's tonight on Beyond Reality. We'll see you in just a moment. Don't go away. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being with us tonight. Like I said, I'm, I'm always uh, a bit stoked. I'm a little excited when we get to talk about things that kind of touch our pop culture nerves. And we're going to do that tonight with our guest, Robert Sullivan. He has researched and explored and written about 
cinema symbolism, symbolism in movies and cinema. Also, we're going to be talking about Freemasonry, too, another topic that really uh, ex- excites me, and I know it, it, it excites the audience. Robert, uh, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here tonight. Your, your background is pretty extensive. You're a Freemason, you're a philosopher, you're a historian, you're an antiquarian, a jurist, a lay theologian, a writer, a mystic, a radio TV personality, a showman, a best-selling author, a CEO, and, you know, just kind of on the side here, you're a lawyer. Is there anything you don't do? Uh, no, I try to uh, be eclectic and uh, do a little of everything. Um, thank you for having me on the show this evening. It's my pleasure to be here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try to, uh, you know, always try to be eclectic in my work and uh, do a little of everything. Well, you certainly have hit hit that objective without any without any problem. I want to talk about how you got started in all of this because you have such a wide variety of interests, but they all seem to kind of connect to what we might call a historical interest. And you uh, grew up with parents that were antique dealers, right? And that must have had something to do with your interests. Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, that is absolutely true. Uh, my mother and father uh, were and still are uh, antique dealers. And, um, you know, just there was a great appreciation of the past um, that that was instilled in me to respect the past, to study the past and to see how it you know, when you study the past to see how it guides us to the future and into the future. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely piqued my curiosity. Uh, of course, you know, in 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 the realm of antique dealing, um, you know, some people can think it's just boring or, you know, it's old furniture or old beat up oriental rugs or something like that. Uh, it can become much more interesting than that. Uh, my parents, um, and uh, even myself for a while specialized in historical artifacts, uh, belongings, and relics associated with historical figures. Um, this was something that was also very intriguing. Um, and, you know, it was something that I, you know, really came to appreciate, you know, seeing the personal belonging of people like, you know, Abraham Lincoln or JFK or people like that. So it definitely instilled in me a great appreciation of the past and history. I mean, I was a history major at Gettysburg College, so it definitely rubbed off. You know, that I, I find the whole, um, antiquing uh, hobby to be a pretty fascinating one as well. I'm not, you know, I don't roll my sleeves up and do it every weekend, but if I'm driving along somewhere and I see a kind of a remote antique shop, I love going in and just browsing because you know that everything you're looking at has a story attached with it. These aren't just items that are old. In a lot of cases, these are items that are old but have a real history associated with them. And while that history might not be obvious, when you're looking at something, you can kind of start to imagine either how it was used or when it was used, maybe who used it. And that's what brings it to life. Absolutely. Um, it's kind of it's it's like a real life treasure hunt almost because you never know what you're going to find at any given time. You could walk into um, an antique store or something and find something quite valuable uh, or precious that, you know, perhaps the owner doesn't have a great appreciation of or, or doesn't know what it is and you can purchase it. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I just, uh, you know, purchased some massive historical artifact or something of great significance. So it, it is. I mean, that's not always the case, of course, but it's it, it, it is like a treasure hunt in many aspects and looking for 
um, things that, you know, you're interested in and things that, you know, I've always enjoyed doing it because like I said, you'd just be walking around, uh, you know, whether it's an antique show and you turn a corner and there's something that lo and behold is something that, you know, really grabs your interest or, you know, walking around and seeing a precious book or something that, um, you know, you know, it grabs your attention again. Uh, you know, it definitely left an impression on me. And like I said, um, I went to Gettysburg College and I was a history major there. And when I was at Oxford, I actually I studied history as well. So it, it definitely left an impression. Well, I tell you, I never forget the story. I was I was a young kid at the time, and I don't remember if it was in the newspaper or on the news. I don't remember how I heard the story, but I know it was it was circulating pretty extensively about the guy that went to like a garage sale and bought this old painting or picture or whatever it was. It was in a frame, took the frame apart, and he found an original copy of the Declaration of Independence inside. And um, you know that always that was always kind of like the big carrot. Uh, for me, whenever I went to a garage sale or I went to an antique shop or whatever happened, I'm always thinking, wow, where's that next treasure hidden that nobody knows about? But it's, you know, it's behind a panel or it's in a box in a secret compartment or it's behind a picture in a frame. Um, you know, it's those stories that that kind of ignite the treasure hunter in all of us. Oh, absolutely. Um, I have similar experiences, and so did my mother and father, uh, of what you're saying. Um, nothing quite like the Declaration of Independence, but I remember years ago, they went, they were driving around in a flea, these were flea markets, um, or yard sales, excuse me. And they pulled it, this is just in the Baltimore area, and they pulled into a yard sale, and just leaning up against the tree was this old black and white photo, which was, it was large. It was about probably two feet by three feet. It was huge. Um, and it depicted, um, about uh, three to four Mexican men on it, holding bandol- or wearing bandoliers and holding rifles and guns. Uh, it was a black and white photo, and they purchased it. They said, how much do you want for this? And the guy said, just give me a dollar for it. Um, and lo and behold, when they brought it home, it turned out to be a authentic photo of the Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata at his wedding um, with his brother. Um, and it was quite precious. Oh, it was wow. quite a rare photo. Yeah. I mean, this was a dollar at a yard sale. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you just never know what you're going to turn up at any given time. And it's the magic of history. Uh, you know, when I talk to people and, and I hear people say, oh, history bores me, whatever, I, I, don't, I just don't think they get it because history created who we are. The things that happened before us that we kind of connected connect to have molded what we think it molds the way we view the world and it molds our actions and when when you when you ignore that i think you're ignoring a greater part of yourself Oh, I agree. Um, I've always been interested in history in the past. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons what drew me to Freemasonry, because the Masonic Lodge, the Masonic Institution, envelopes so much of history. I mean, not only, you know, not as it historical, uh, you're dealing with philosophy and politics and pop culture uh, and symbolism and religion. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you know, anytime you, you are dealing with um, something like that that has these deep historical roots, it definitely can affect you in the present day. And um, like you said, it's a study of the past is determined, you know, is, is you can discover how we got to where we are, uh, you know, why, you know, why the country is like it is in some aspects. So, no, I've always uh, treasured, uh, you know, history. Like I said, I was a history major and, um, you know, my first book that I published, uh, The Royal Archery of Enoch, was all about Masonic history by and large. Yeah, and, and that must have played a big part in your decision to go to Gettysburg College. First of all, Gettysburg is one of my favorite places in the country. But secondly, it's so steeped in history. And although, you know, it, it really is connected to just one part of American history, it's such a crucial part of American history. And 
the Battle of Gettysburg was such a crucial part of the crucial part of American history. What we're talking about here is the Civil War. So that must have played a part in your decision in going to Gettysburg. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you're absolutely correct. I mean, um, you, you know, I was on the college campus, but I mean, you set the minute you set foot off that college campus. I mean, you are by and large in a historical landmark of some kind, you know, a national battlefield. Uh, I mean, I was in a fraternity house. If you went up on the roof and just looked out. At some point, you know, you don't have to turn very far to see a monument dedicated to something yeah. or a statue of somebody. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I, I loved my time at Gettysburg and certainly the Civil War and the battle was uh, instrumental in just studying history in general. But uh, it's a special place. Uh, you, you could definitely it definitely resonates with history. No doubt about it. Yeah, I, lo- I love going. there. I try to get there at least once a year. Sometimes I'm there a couple times a year. It's like I said, a favorite place. Let's talk, Rob, about your uh, introduction to Freemasonry. At what point did you um, become familiar with Freemasonry as a whole, but then decide to become a Mason yourself? I probably I became familiar with it very early on in my life because I come from a line of Maryland Freemasons, uh, including my grandfather and great grandfather and multiple great grandfathers, actually. Um, So I became uh, I, I knew about it early on. Uh, in my life. And I knew that it was something that interested me because um, as a child growing up, I was always interested in things like the paranormal, ghosts, UFOs, cryptozoology, things like that. And anytime you, you're you dealing with the Masons, you're dealing with arcane symbols, arcane philosophies, you know, the occult, uh, secret rituals, things like that. So this, this um, interested me very much. Uh, you cannot join a Masonic Lodge uh, until you're 21 years of old. Now, if your father is a Mason, you can join, I believe the age is 18. That may have dropped to 16, uh, but it was 18 when I went through it. But my father wasn't a Mason. It skipped over him. So I had to wait till I was 21. And it really wasn't. I kind of waited for the time to present itself. Um, Obviously, when I I was 21 years old, when I actually turned 21, I was at Oxford University. I actually turned 21 overseas. And uh, when I came back um, from England, I took a year off from college and I worked. And then uh, I went back to Gettysburg. I finished off my uh, senior year in 1994-95. And it was it was at this point um, in between when I graduated Gettysburg uh, to when I went to law school that it was in this 1996 time frame where this opportunity presented itself. I was, like I said, out of college and I hadn't gone to law school yet. So. Um, it was literally I was out with dinner with my mother and father with a friend of theirs, and he was a Freemason. He had on the Masonic lapel pin or he may have worn a ring. I can't recall. And uh, I just in the talk of the dinner, I mentioned to him that, you know, I saw that he was a Mason. I expressed an interest in joining. And I said, you know, let's do this. Let's do this right now. You know, if I, I want to join, you know, let, how, how do we get the ball rolling on this? And he said, well, he said, if you're interested, and I said, I am, he said, I'll make some phone calls and I'll get you a petition to join the lodge. And sure enough, probably about a week later in the mail, I received an application. I filled it out. I sent in the, the, uh, the filled out form with the, I think, fee, which I think was about off the top of my head, about $150 somewhere in there. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was receiving phone calls to be interviewed. A committee had been set up and uh, my petition, this would have been the summer of 1996. um, And uh, eventually somewhere in the fall of 96, my petition was voted upon. It was accepted. 
and uh, I went up to the lodge uh, in, in in Maryland. There's a Grand Lodge, and uh, was initiated in the first degree in January of 1997. And then I received the second degree in uh, May of 1997, and I did the third degree in September of 97. So that's how I became a Freemason, and this was something I had always wanted to do, and uh, I was so happy that I did it. And uh, like I said, I've been a uh, I've been a Mason now for good God, 23 years. Hard to believe. Well, you've written a book about the Masons uh, called The Royal Arch of Enoch, and we're going to talk about that. But in a more general sense, my father was a Mason late in his life. He he joined. Uh, my brother-in-law is a Mason. And, um, you know, I've been asked to to, uh, to consider becoming a Mason. And, I, you know, I just haven't had the time to consider it too seriously. However, what is the reason someone either wants to or does become a Freemason? What What's the motivation to do that? Right. Well, it's a good question. It, this, this, this perspective has somewhat changed over the last 25 years. Uh, pretty much when I went through it, in, it was 23 years ago, and up until then, the primary reason that most men joined a Masonic Lodge was, one, to carry on a family tradition, or two, two to be part of a brotherhood, to be part of a fraternity. I was at a fraternity house at Gettysburg College, and it's always a good time. And three, you know, community involvement, community service, uh, forging relations with uh, people, community leaders, people in the community who may be from a different walk of life from you. So I would say that was um, pretty much up until then, you know, the motivating factors as to why people have joined. Um, This is somewhat swayed over the last 10 to 15 years where there has been a much more pronounced uh, interest in esoteric teachings, hermetic philosophy, uh, is drawing people into it. This was something that if you had mentioned in the 1990s, you would have probably have been scoffed at. Um, and people would have looked at you kind of strangely. But, you know, if a Mason was interviewing you and said, why did you want to join? And you said, well, I'm interested in, you know, hermetic philosophy and Kabbalah or something like that, they probably would have sat back and scratched their head. Whereas today in 2020, uh, that would probably not be as unwelcomed as it was 25 years ago. Uh, So, uh, you know, those are primarily the reasons why people join. It it is a secret society. It does use a lot of symbolic teachings. It does have esoteric and hermetic philosophies. Uh, But again, this was something that was somewhat swept under the rug. Uh, pretty much until the advent of the internet, where people, you know, got more introduced to the writings of people like Manley Palmer Hall or Albert Pike or Albert Mackey uh, or Albert Churchward. He's another one um, where it's it's definitely um, appealing to an esoteric sensibility in millennials that is new again. That it was part of masonry in its early foundations, but for various reasons was swept under the rug um, and suppressed. Um, but it's now coming back to the surface, which is a good thing, I think. So does the the book, your book, uh, take a look at all of that and all of that history? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, deals with a lot of philosophy, a lot of religion, a lot of history. The The primary thesis of the book uh, was to present a historical anomaly, which had never hitherto had been presented, which was that in Freemasonry, in the high degree system, which was developed in Paris, France in the 1740s, 1750s, uh, one of the rituals in particular titled the Royal Arch of Enoch, it's the 13th degree, uh, it's something known as the Rite of Perfection. It survives to this day in the Scottish Rite as the 13th degree. Uh, it's in the York Rite as the 7th degree. 
And uh, this ritual, as it is being developed, was including or incorporating elements of one Enoch or the Book of Enoch, which is a historical anomaly because one Enoch was lost to history, lost to Western civilization from about the second, third centuries uh, up until 1773, when a man named, a Freemason actually, named James Bruce, uh, returned from Ethiopia to Europe with three copies of it. Um, and even at that point in time, those copies weren't translated into English until 1821. Yet this Masonic high degree ritual developed in the 1740s, 1750s was incorporating elements of one Enoch, which should not have been happening. Uh, so the thesis is that someone else out there, someone in Europe, uh, likely had a copy of this thing, which was being used to cultivate these high degrees, specifically this one ritual in particular. And the reason why this is so important and so critical to history is, um, and again, I talk about it in the book, it's a 700-page book, um, so I, mean, I can only really paint with broad strokes as I do interviews. But to make a long story incredibly short, uh, it's really this degree, this high-degree ritual that the founders of the United States are drawing from in developing and cultivating and creating the United States of America. Uh, it's this Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial that includes so many symbols and philosophies that the guys who the founding fathers, the Masonic you know, founders of this country are really drawing from in developing uh, the United States of America. That's why it's so important. And um, that's that's really the crux of uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch book. All right. We're going to come back to that point in just a second. But backing up just a hair, if someone asked you, what is the origin of the Freemasons? Is there a Templar connection? And if not, uh, what is the actual source? It's a great question, and it's debatable. Um, you'll get different answers from who you want to talk to. Uh, the the Masonic Lodge uh, existed prior to this date, but it officially comes on the history pages on June 24th, uh, 1770, 1717. June the 24th is, of course, a celebration of the summer solstice uh, known as the Feast Day of St. John the Baptist. And um, it existed prior to then as medieval craft guild and stoneworker guilds, but it officially comes onto the map in 1717. Um, in 1723, a Presbyterian minister named James Anderson writes uh, something known as the Constitutions of the Freemasons, and he traces this legendary history of the Masons back to biblical stoneworkers, biblical guilds, medieval cathedral builders, uh, construct you know the constructors of the pyramids, things like that. Um, and this this philosophy holds. Up until 1737, when a very eccentric individual named Andrew Michael the Chevalier Ramsey, who is a English uh, Catholic, he's a supporter of the Jacobite cause, um, publishes uh, his oration uh, in 1737, and he breaks from Anderson. And he says in, in the history of the Masons, and this is where the whole Templar thing comes into it. Ramsey says, I don't dispute what Anderson is saying about the medieval, you know, stoneworking guilds, things like that. He said, but the the origins of the Freemasons lie with this Roman Catholic set of warrior monks known as the Knights Templar. And that essentially, while the Templars were in the Holy Land, they interacted with these remnants of the ancient mystery schools 
the Egyptian mysteries, the mysteries of Osiris, the mysteries of Mithras, Pythagoreanism, uh, Sufism, and they transported these mystical um, philosophies back to Europe. And these philosophies were later incorporated into speculative and operative Freemasonry. So Ramsey is the guy who breaks uh, from Anderson and ejects this Roman Catholic Knights Templar mythology into Freemasonry. Give us an idea of uh, instances whereby the founders drew from uh, Masonic rites and ideas in the framing of the country. There's got to be a few that you can point to. Of course, uh, right off the top of my head, the easiest one is the triple division of government in the United States Constitution. Uh, the, drip, the, the division of government between a executive, a legislator, a legislative branch and a judicial branch comes straight from Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where the Blue Lodge, this is the local lodge, when I say Blue Lodge, I'm referring to the local lodge unit, um, is triple divided between a worshipful master and two wardens. One warden sits in the west as the setting sun, uh, that's the senior warden, and the other, yeah, that's the uh, senior warden, I believe, and the other warden, the junior warden sits in the uh, south representing the sun in midday and of course the worship worshipful master sits in the east as the rising sun in the morning so the triple division of the united states government um uh, it comes straight out of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where the governance of the lodge is triple divided. Another um, instance is the uh, separation of church and state. Uh, this comes out of Anderson's constitutions, where Anderson does not make uh, does not uh, does not enforce a religious requirement to join the Masonic lodge. Essentially, you have to believe in a supreme being. Um, you know, in God we trust, as it were, uh, in order to join the Masonic Lodge. But you can be Christian, you can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can be, um, you know, a Hindu. Yeah, as long as you believe in a supreme being, uh, that's fine. And, you know, the, 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 the Masonic Lodge does not ally itself with one particular religion. Um, and, of course, you'll find this in the United States Constitution with the separation of church and state. That, again, is lifted directly from Anderson's constitutions. So that is just two examples of how masonry um, influenced uh, the creation of the United States. It's no secret that Freemasonry and the Masonic Temple is a secret society. Um, but it's, it's when it's used in pop culture references, and in some cases in historical references, it's often, you know, said kind of, you know, with a sideways glance. Is there anything to fear from this group? Well, I've been involved with it for 23 years, and I've never really feared anything. The There are a vast amount of conspiracies that continue to swirl t- around it to this day. Um, some of them are – well, most of them not, – not all of them, but a lot of them are based in reality. Um, for example, I mean, there really was a Bavarian Illuminati, which linked itself to Freemasonry, that was trying to enforce a firebrand of Freemasonry to reconfigure uh, society uh, amongst uh, along very occult lines. Uh, some of these theories and theologies actually survive today in, in Freemasonry, especially in the higher degrees. Um, and then, of course, uh, you had in the United States 
after the founding of the country, uh, you had many men who were uh, Masons, were, were involved with Freemasonry, who were using the Masonic Lodge to cross party lines, um, to, to, to use Freemasonry as a political tool, as it were, um, to end rancor amongst Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists. So they were sort of working behind the scenes of government to enforce policy. But the problem was, um, this was all done, like I said, behind the scenes. There was no daylight. Um, and this was eventually exposed um, in the 1820s by something known as the William Morgan Affair, where essentially it became known to Americans that there was this Masonic cabal working in the government, um, creating policy unbeknownst to them. And uh, the guy who was behind this was a governor of New York State named DeWitt Clinton. He was sort of this Masonic Illuminati-style godfather who was pulling the strings of all politics uh, on Masonic, you know, on these Masonic lines to uh, formulate policy and, and uh, you know, enforce, you know, pass laws essentially. And uh, this was very much frowned upon. Mason, masonry nearly went out of business. Uh, there was a huge backlash against Freemasonry in the 1820s and 1830s uh, because of this. Masonry ultimately survived it because the seventh president of the United States, a man named Andrew Jackson, refused to cave into it. Uh, but one of the consequences of this was that masonry had to distance itself from any sort of esoteric principles or philosophies. It essentially emerged as a fraternal order that helped widows and orphans. Any talk or any notion of esoteric philosophy or anything like that was distance. It was, like I said earlier, kind of swept under the rug um, because it was already frowned upon and it, it was beginning to look like this was some sort of, you know, almost black magic cabal, as it were. And it was really this philosophy that carried Blue Lodge Freemasonry through the 19th century, even through most of the 20th century. And it really has been with the advent of the Internet where there has been this great revival uh, in the esoteric philosophies of the Masonic Blue Lodge. But essentially, to answer the question, a lot of the conspiracies um, that swirl around Freemasonry, not all of them, um, but a lot of them can be found uh, you know, in history, do have historical precedent. Uh, so it's, it's not unreasonable for people to think this way. Unfortunately, most of this has been uh, completely curtailed. I mean, the Masons are nowhere near as powerful as they once were. Um, and they see, people see things, um, like they see the architecture of Washington, D.C., which was all designed and laid out by Freemasons. Um, and they see this as this evidence of this vast conspiracy where it was essentially the, the, the country was being crafted around Masonic Lodge teachings because it was a rejection of European monarchy and the Vatican. So where are we going to, you know, when, when the Masons essentially were founding this country, I'll just leave it at this. It was sort of the, the thing is, well, we knew what we didn't want. We didn't want a European monarchy and we didn't want a Vatican style organization. So what what organization, you know, did these guys all belong to that promoted democracy that was egalitarian? Uh, you know, it's the Masonic Lodge. So when these guys were formulating this na nation, it's like, oh, well, let's just turn to the Blue Lodge. Let's just turn to Masonry and just use the symbols and teachings and philosophies and tenets of Masonry to essentially craft the nation around. 
that's really what happened. I've already recognized that we made a mistake here by not scheduling you for two different nights, one to talk about Freemasonry and the other to talk about the cinema symbolism. Um, So we're going to have to have you back because this this discussion about Masonry is really, really quite fascinating. It's very timely as well. One more question about Masonry, though, and then um, we're going to take a break and we'll come back and we'll start talking about your other books related to cinema symbolism. Um, You know, there's always rumors and uh, conspiracy ideas surrounding Freemasonry that there's vast treasures hidden away in secret places one of those places might be oak island any any truth in your research to any of those ideas absolutely absolutely true um this is documented in a masonic ritual um and this is the subject matter of my book um in the masonic ritual um in the 13th degree this is the royal arch of enoch ceremony the ritual revolves around um, and this is a bit of a long-winded answer, but I'll try to condense it as long as, as short no, as okay. I can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in the in the in the Blue Lodge, this is the first three degrees of Masonry. The third degree ritual involves the construction of Solomon's Temple, the first temple to God. Um, a guy by the name of Hiram Abiff is the architect, and he possesses something known as the name of God, which is called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, it's a mouthful, and he possesses this name, and it's from the correct excuse me from the correct pronunciation of this name, from whence all wisdom and knowledge derives. He is murdered because he refuses to give up this name. Three fellow crafts uh, seek to extract the name from him, and he says, "Well, I'll tell it to you once the temple's complete." They said, "No, that's not good enough." So they murder him, and the, the word is lost. Um, you'll, you'll hear this routinely in, in Masonic circles or Masonic writings. What's, this is what's known as the lost word of the Master Mason. Uh, it's the name of God. Um, if you fast forward to the high degrees, um, the 13th degree, Solomon's temple's been destroyed, and the Jews are returning from Persia uh, to construct the second temple. Uh, this is what's known as the Temple of Zorobabel, another tongue twister. And it is as they are building this temple, they discover this trap door uh, in the ground and they spring this trap door and they go down into this subterranean vault where they find this vast treasure trove um, relating to uh, things uh, that are related to this biblical patriarch Enoch. It's essentially the pillars of Enoch upon which all wisdom is inscribed along with this name of God, um, which is concealed on the Tetragrammaton along with uh, uh, sitting on top the Ark of the Covenant. And yes, this is the Ark of the Covenant of Moses. Um, So Masonic ritual is documenting the discovery of this treasure vault um, on this, you know, and the the location is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So when you begin researching this, as I do, as I did, and I still do, uh, you begin to realize that is this ritual more than just a ritual? Is this ritual trying to convey some sort of lost yet legitimate history that the Templars may have found something uh, on the, you know, on the Temple Mount and brought it back to Europe. It's interesting because the ritual pretty much as it exists today, uh, the the ritual, the, the, the discoverers of the subterranean vault are Jewish temple builders. As the ritual was originally cultivated, it's Knights Templar. It's Roman Catholic Knights Templar who discover it. So it does lend credence to this idea that the Templars discovered something in the Holy Land on the Temple Mount and brought it back to Europe. And then you get into this whole notion that they took it to Roslyn Chapel. Uh, the, the template of Roslyn Chapel is designed after the Temple of Zorobabel. Uh, so we have a nexus there. And then you get into this whole idea that, that they take this stuff to Oak Island. Um, I mean, certainly if you're familiar with the Masonic ritual, 
equal. Um, the 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 treasure vault is 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 concealed under nine arches on Oak Island. There are nine levels to the uh, money pit. This is, seems to be a Knights Templar influence. Um, you know, when you have the idea of a subterranean treasure vault. So yeah, I mean, I mean, could could there have really be out there some sort of tr- Knights Templar Masonic treasure being concealed somewhere? Absolutely. And I'll just leave it on this. Um, if you're interested in this subject matter, what I'm just talking about, um, this is actually the subject. This Masonic ritual is the subject of a movie. Um, and this is one of the movies that got me involved with all this. It's National Treasure uh, with Nicolas Cage. I mean, what's the plot of the movie? It's the discovery and restoration of this Knights Templar treasure vault um, in a subterranean, you know, underground. Um, in the movie, they place it in New York City, which is, you know, beneath the holy ground, beneath the church in New York City. And this is a direct reference to who else but DeWitt Clinton, who was this high degree royal arch grandmaster um, to which, uh, you know, is documented this in this Masonic rite. So, Absolutely. There could be um, some sort of Masonic Knight Templar treasure out there. The more you look at it, the more when you when you understand this ritual, it, it becomes apparent that this ritual is more than just that. It seems to be documenting some lost history of some kind. Well, OK, so I can't I can't re- resist that bait because I'm a real uh, fanatic about the whole Oak Island story. And uh, you've just given me some information that I wasn't aware of talking about the nine platforms, et cetera. But um, the other thing that kind of obviously seems to be a direct reference, if if in fact it's true, but it sure seems to be on the surface, is the swamp on Oak Island has that uh, pyramid shape with what looks to be like an eye at the top, like you'd see on the back of a one dollar bill. Is that something that you've noticed as well? I mean, you seem to have looked into this, too. Yeah, the well, I've never, I've never really examined it in the context of Oak Island. Um, the the symbol, the truncated pyramid with the all-seeing eye. This is a Masonic emblem going back since time immemorial. Um, you will find references all over the place in Masonic liter- literature to um, the construction of the pyramids. The third degree Masonic ritual is a retelling of Osiris of uh, Egyptian mythology, the legend of Osiris, uh, the killing and resurrected solar god man, as it were. Um, the all-seeing eye, the eye of Providence. This again uh, is a is a symbol that you'll find in Christian churches. You'll find it on Masonic aprons. You'll find it on Masonic documents. It's it's a symbol denoting uh, the deistic god of Freemasonry. Again, Freemasonry does not associate itself directly with any of the Abrahamic faiths. Um, it's deistic. It requires a belief in a supreme being, but it doesn't adhere to any um, particular uh, religion. Now, granted, um, you will find nominal references to Judaism, Christianity, even even um, Islam in, in the Blue Lodge. Uh, but by and large, when you peel the curtain back, as it were, pull the curtain back, you'll find this is all a reference to the sun and Osiris and the Egyptian mythology, which, again, is a, is a solar legend, as it were. So um, the whole symbol, the, the whole idea of the of the uh, the concept, probably is a better word, of the all-seeing eye with the pyramid. I mean, yeah, it's a decidedly Masonic um, solar emblem. I've never really, to be brutally honest with you, I've never really looked at it in the context of Oak Island. Um, I have to do more research onto it. But there are a lot of linkages um, between the Templars. Um, and the uh, and, and the treasure vault, perhaps um, on Oak Island, uh, the number nine, the, the nine archways, nine archways, and the um, platforms being probably the most um, interesting of them all. 
Yeah, it, this is a fascinating topic as well. While we've hit several that could each in themselves be a whole show. So again, I'm going to I'm going to make you promise you're going to come back on. Um this book, the book that talks about everything we were just chatting about relating to the Masons is called Royal Arch of Enoch. And um where's that available? Yeah, the Royal Arch of Enoch is available online. It's um it's available um, through all the major online retailers. You can get the print edition if you want. You can get the ebook. Uh, it's available on Amazon.com, Book Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Uh, the print edition is out. The, uh, the ebook is out. The you know Kindle or the Nook. Um, it's available right now. Anybody can get it anytime they want to. Robert Sullivan is our guest. His website is his name, Robert W. Sullivan IV, as in the Roman numeral four dot com. Many books to his credit, including the Royal Arch of Enoch. And Cinema Symbolism, and also Cinema Symbolism 2. That's what we're going to talk about right now with uh, with Rob. Rob, you've got a third one on the way. Am I correct in, in reading that? Yes. Uh, Cinema Symbolism 3 is complete. Uh, it is probably, uh, it is will come out likely the end of summer, early autumn of 2020. But the book is done. Um, I'm just going through it now, making sure everything's in order with it, making sure everything's I like, uh, you know, I like with it, uh, you know, make sure I like it. Uh, but that book should be out. The Cinema Symbolism 3 is done. That will be out. I'm anticipating a late summer, early autumn 2020 release for that one. Now, this is a pretty cool topic, too. Uh, you had mentioned in our in our previous segment, talking about the Masons, that uh, one of the things that got you into this was the connections between the, the Masonic legends, if you will, and a movie called National Treasure. Uh, is that how you developed an interest in this whole topic? That's one of them. Uh, that was... A seminal one was the National Treasure movie. I remember seeing that and be like, wow, that's the Masonic ritual. I mean, there it is. There's the Royal Arch of Enoch uh, ritual. It, it probably started earlier on. Um, it, well, I mean, I say probably. It did start earlier on. Uh, really, one of one of the first um, influences, um, you know, or I guess tip-offs, not influences, you know, revelations that there was something more to this was the Star Wars movies. Um, and I'm, when I say the Star Wars movies, I'm referring to the, the first three. Right. Uh, you know, Star Wars, Empire, and Jedi. I was born in 1971. I mean, so I grew up on those movies. And at some point in the late, in the mid to late 1980s, I remember stumbling, I can't remember how, across the name of Joseph Campbell. And who is an American comparative mythologist? Uh, he wrote a book uh, called "The Hero with a Thousand Faces," which is about comparative mythology. And uh, somewhere along the line, right, right in that time frame, uh, I, I learned that Lucas had essentially based those movies on this book, um, and that that Campbell had discussed that in mythology proper. There were these elements that always reoccurred. They were archetypal. Um, they always turned up in one form or fashion. And uh, I got a hold of the book and you start reading. It, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, there's Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, there's uh, the lightsaber. You know, there's the Dark Lord figure, Darth Vader. You know, there's the uh, hero dragged from his doldrums, you know, dragged from his banal existence into this vast adventure. Uh, you know, whether it be, you know, Luke Skywalker, uh, you know, there's the, the, the female figure who is both this driving force for the hero, but can also be sort of this, uh, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, warrior type figure as well. She can play, she wears many masks as it were. This is Princess Leia. And um, I remember reading that book and just being so impressed with it. And that's when I, I remember for the first time thinking, oh, well, I mean, here we go. I mean, here are these incredibly popular 
movies, I mean, or, you know, these were the movies, literally, when I say I grew up on, I did, um, essentially coming out of, you know, Greco-Roman Egyptian mythology, for lack of a better word. And that resonated with me. And uh, I, I continued, you know, that kind of was, like I said, the uh, tip off that these movies were just more than popcorn summertime entertainments. Uh, a lot of these movies conveyed and were hiding these very deep uh theories and, and themes and symbolism, uh, whether it related to alchemy or Gnosticism or Christianity or ancient religions or the occult, uh, you know, a lot of, not all movies, but a lot of them were just including uh, these very deep arcane themes in them. And uh, it, it just it was a very interesting, I was fascinated by this. It was just a fascinating subject matter. And it really wasn't until the late 1990s, probably the early 2000s, with the uh, with the National Treasure movie. I think it came out in 03 and 04. And then at the end of uh, the turn of the last century, at the end of the 1990s, we were. And I don't know if this if this is psychological. It must be. Uh, there was this string of Gnostic movies uh, just dealing with awakening and awakening to consciousness uh, that came out. I guess I guess the one that was probably the one that everyone knows was the first Matrix movie. I mean, we had movies such as Fight Club um, and uh, Existence is another one. And even Vanilla Sky, movies like Donnie Darko, um, just these, these very uh, deep Gnostic films. And this was sort of the catalyst that started me, you know, delving into really the deeper meanings of these films, along with National Treasure. What what's the intention here? Is this just a coincidence by on, on the part of the filmmakers? Do they just see you know interesting things and incorporate them into their films? Or is there something more deliberate about this? Well, it depends. It depends on the sophistication of the filmmaker. Um, I believe most of it is completely deliberate uh, because I, you know they're they're incorporating, including these esoteric and occult nuances, to make the movie transcendental, uh, to make the movie something more than a film, to make it a piece of alchemical artwork. Um, it's like Da Vinci inc- incorporating hidden meanings in his paintings, or an architect um, using sacred geometry in his buildings. It's the exact same thing. Um, um, by placing these arcane images and themes into films, it turns the film into mythology is essentially what it does. So, yes, some of it's intentional. Um, some of it is coincidental. Uh, that, that is the case as well. Uh, what is what is really interesting is when the movie I, I think one of the biggest um, talking points now is when the movie becomes prophetic uh, and that it seems to anticipate future events. Uh, how is that occurring? Um, do the filmmakers have access? It's, it's a two. It's a it's a multi pronged question because you can look at it one of two ways. You can either say, okay, well, the filmmakers are doing this on purpose. Um, is that a yes or no question? Well, if it's a yes question and you believe that's the case, then the next logical question is, well, how are they doing it? Um, do they have access to time travel? Are they using some sort of magic or sorcery? Are they gazing into a crystal ball like? you know, Nostradamus or John D. Um, that's the pathway you go down with that. If the answer is no, that they are not doing that, then the answer lies in psychology. Um, and I believe that the answer then lies in the works of people like Carl Gustav Jung, and you're dealing with ideas related to the collective unconscious, uh, where 
or synchronicity where things are not only inherited, but the artistic expression of hu- humankind is somehow being is somehow prophetic. Um, so you're really into a two pronged study here as to the filmmaker, if it's intentional and, and it's prophetic and they're and they're incorporating future events into films then the answer then you have to ask is there are they doing this on purpose and if they are how are they doing it and if the answer is no then you're into the world of psychology uh but either way um no matter how you look at it it's fascinating either way let's um let's get into some specifics here uh one of the films that you've looked at has uh, received a lot of attention recently. And I'm talking about the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. Tell us about some of the symbolism there. Well, I mean, you know, you are dealing with a movie that is incredibly dark. Um, Probably not since Black Swan have I encountered a movie as bleak as Joker. Um, Although arguably you could throw the two Ari Aster movies in in with that lot as well, Hereditary and Midsommar. Uh, Joker is very, very, very dark. I mean, right off the bat, um, we have, uh, you know, the, the makeup of, of the Arthur Fleck character, the Joker makeup, is based on a serial killer, uh, John Wayne Gacy, uh, who masqueraded around as a killer clown. Uh, his alter ego was named Pogo the Clown, and he had a face, you know, his facial paint was very similar to that of the Jokers in the Joker film. The blue triangles around the eyes, uh, the red grin, the pale makeup. Uh, this whole uh, facial paint, this design, is actually a subconscious. Uh, it's shunned by professional clowns. It's it's a um, it's designed to look like a human skull. It's designed to frighten children. So the Arthur Fleck, uh, that's the Joaquin Phoenix character, the face paint of the Joker is actually based on a real-life serial killer named John Wayne Gacy, and his alter ego is Clown. Alter ego is Pogo the Clown. Uh, this is actually confirmed in the movie when uh, the, the comedy club that uh, that the Joker Arthur Fleck performs in is called Pogo's. Uh, again, that's a direct right. reference. That's a direct reference to John Wayne Gacy. Um, and again, Gacy was a serial killer who murdered children. He he sexually abused, tortured, and murdered uh, I believe thirty three young men and children, burying most of them in the crawl space of his Chicago home. Um, believe it or not, we actually have another reference to uh, uh, child molestation um, and the harming of children in this movie, uh, not only with the Gacy makeup, but with the when the music that's playing. And music is another um, uh, tool that these filmmakers use to convey occult or esoteric meaning. Uh, the music that's playing when... Uh, uh, Joker is descending into madness at the end. He's literally dancing down a flight of steps, symbolizing a descent into madness. The music that's playing is called Rock and Roll Part Two uh, by Gary Glitter. It's more commonly known as the Hay Song. Uh, and Gary Glitter is in jail right now for molesting children, for molesting little boys. Wow. So, I mean, we have this we have this double barrel uh, of dark symbolism with Joker, where his face paint is based on an American serial killer named John Wayne Gacy, and he dances to the music of a child molester. Uh, this is pretty bleak. Uh, this is pretty dark. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very fascinating movie. I liked it. I mean, I thought it was a great film, but uh, it's very bleak, very, very gloomy film, to say the least. And that's just two examples in it. I am a horror movie fanatic. I always have been since a little kid. Uh, one of my favorites is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Tell us about what's going on in The Shining we should be looking for. 
Yeah, well, I'll say this to you. Um, if you're a horror buff like I am, uh, and I am as well, uh, if you haven't seen the movies of Ari Aster yet, uh, Hereditary and Midsommar, do yourself a favor and check those things out. Those things are overloaded with all kinds of stuff. Uh, Kubrick, uh, The Shining with Kubrick is another one of my all-time favorites. And yeah, I mean, Kubrick really overloads The Shining with a lot of repetition. Uh, he repeats numbers. A lot of the characters say things back to each other. Uh, this is a movie that I've analyzed in both the books because there's so much going on in it. And uh, what he does by using repetition, uh, he is conveying to your subconscious mind that the Overlook Hotel is essentially an, an Ouroboros. It's essentially a snake that forever bites its tail. It's an endless cycle of reincarnation. Uh, that's all it does is reincarnate, you know, whether it's Delbert Grady, Charles Grady, Jack Torrance. It's this endless cycle of reincarnation where it's a kill, it's a murder after another after another. So to convey this notion that the uh, that the uh, or that the or hotel overlook, the overlook hotel um, just repeats itself. He bombards you with repetitive devices all over the place. I mean, so, for example, he uses the number 12 um, all over the place in this. Um, so, for example, um, there are two times put on the uh, screen. Uh, I believe it's um, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. If you add 8 and 4, you get the number 12. Jack Torrance throws the ball, the tennis ball, against the wall 12 times. He hits the door with the axe 12 times. Uh, Danny and Wendy take a turn in the maze 12 times. Um, and when Scatman Crothers is talking to him in the pantry, he talks about them being 12 pounds of sugar. Um, if you take the room number 237, if you add it up, you get the number 12. Uh, another number that he repeats is the number 42. If you take 237 and multiply it, you get the number 42. Uh, Danny is wearing the number 42 on his T-shirt at the beginning of the movie. Scatman Crothers drives a car with the license plate of number 42 on it. Uh, the movie that Danny and Wendy are watching in the hotel room or in the hotel is the summer of 42. So these are just some examples of how Kubrick uses numbers and repetition to blast your subconscious mind that the Overlook Hotel is this uh, vessel of reincarnation. It's an Ouroboros. It's, it's something that forever goes round and round over and over again, um, denoting this murderous cycle going on inside of it. It's a great movie. Um, there are other themes going on in it. There's a, a struggle between uh, – there's an entire uh, subtext of the struggle of Native Americans versus European invasion where the Overlook is representing sort of the dark side of America, uh, sort of the, the er eradication of the uh, American Indians at the expense of white colonization. I mean we're told that the Overlook as sort of the dark side of America is built on an American Indian ground. So, of course, it's – you know the idea is – is that Europe, European nations essentially buried Native Americans. Um, he says that, you know, all the best people in America, the movie stars, the politicians come here. So it's all opulent. And um, this struggle is seen, of course, in the weapons of choice by Danny, excuse me, by Wendy and Jack, where Jack wields the axe of the Indians, the tomahawk. And of course, Wendy wields the baseball bat representing the great American pastime of baseball. So you have this entire interplay going on of Native American versus European colonization going on as well in, 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 film, in, in The Shining as well. I, I'm just scratching the surface with it. Um, I analyze it in both books. It's, it's seemingly The Shining is one of those movies that it never seems to end just because there's so much going on inside of it. It's not just The Shining, too. It's Kubrick himself. He, he seems to be at the center of these types of things with all of his work, or a lot of it anyway. 
Absolutely. Um, Kubrick, Kubrick does some things that is, is there's some very strange things going on with Kubrick. I mean, not only do you have the, I mean, the one movie that, you know, I talk about as well is of course, is the eyes wide shut movie. Um, of course, this is his little Illuminati magnum opus. Uh, there's a lot going on inside of Eyes Wide Shut. I talk about that movie in Cinema Symbolism too. But the one movie that just floored me, um, and I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism three, and it's just it's just really uncanny um, how how much the movie seems to anticipate the the rest of Kubrick's career was a movie I believe that he made in 1962-63. Uh, it's a movie called Lolita. And uh, it stars Peter Sellers in it. If you watch Lolita, you will see that movie seems to anticipate the rest of Kubrick's career. I mean, you'll find elements of Clockwork Orange in it. You'll find all sorts of references to a Full Metal Jacket, uh, to The Shining, to Barry Lyndon. Uh, there's all sorts of little uh, nuances, and it's almost like Kubrick like knew his future almost. That inside Lolita, he seems to reference. All his future films. I don't know how he did it, if it's all coincidence, but it's really an amazing study. Um, and then you get into the whole thing with Kubrick, um, with this whole nexus to NASA, um, which is documented. Um, you know, you know, did, did Kubrick film the, the guys jumping around on the moon stage? Well, the theory is that NASA saw um, – I mean, this isn't a conspiracy theory. Uh, NASA saw his work with uh, Strangelove and 2001, so he came to them and asked them whether they went to the moon, to the moon or not is, is debatable. But um, that he used – you know, the theory is that they actually went to the moon, that Armstrong and Aldrin went to the moon, but they couldn't film there. So they filmed – Kubrick filmed these guys jumping around in a – in a soundstage. And this was what was used to show the American people in the world that they went to the moon. Um, Kubrick is allegedly to have exposed this in The Shining. What's fascinating is, and that people don't uh, realize this, is that Kubrick actually turned to NASA, of all things, to film Barry Lyndon in the, 19, in the mid-1970s. Um, Kubrick wanted to film that movie naturally. And up until Barry Lyndon, it was very difficult to film scenes in candlelight. And directors had a hell of a time trying to film these older films, these older set movies in candlelight, where the, the, the scene was illuminated by candlelight only. It couldn't be done. It was either too dark. It didn't come out right. It looked weird. Um, you know, and Barry Lyndon is set during the Napoleonic Wars. And Kubrick went to NASA, and NASA had just, defil- just developed this odd lens that allowed – you know, uh, allowed you to film candlelight where it didn't look too dark. It basically highlighted the light. So Barry Lyndon was actually filmed with NASA technology, believe that or not. So there was this, there is a decided link between Kubrick and NASA. That's not a conspiracy theory. Wow. And also, um, you know, one of the theories about uh, Kubrick filming the guys jumping around on the surface of the moon is that NASA was concerned that if there was a disaster, they did not want it to be on live television. Therefore, they, you know, had this had the stage version so they could control what was seen and what had happened. And that's a that's a theory that goes uh, a conspiracy discussion that goes very, very deep. And we've had it on this program before. Um, We're going to run out of time because there's so much to talk about here. But tell me just quickly about the number 237, because it shows up more than just The Shining. Right, right. Well, the the 237, he, he changed it. Um, and this, again, it ties into uh, it's either 213 or 217, I believe, in the novel. And he changed it. it it's a mnemonic device because it represents the number 12 and the number 47. Um, the 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 it ties into the whole notion that um, 
Kubrick filmed the guys with on the moon or jumping around the soundstage because this is the whole scene with Danny Torrance. When he stands up, he wears the Apollo 11 sweatshirt and then he goes to room 237. Uh, in the late 1970s, the moon was 237,000 miles from Earth. So the theory is the idea is that Kubrick, by changing the room number, by showing Danny with the Apollo 11 uh, rocket on his sweater, goes to the moon. He goes 237 to the moon. That's what Kubrick is you know, trying to tell you, that he filmed the moon footage. The number has an origin um, in another movie that came out a few years earlier that actually has a nexus uh, to The Shining. Uh, believe it or not, in I believe the film came out in 1977. It might have been 78. Uh, it's a movie by Dario Argento called Suspiria. Yeah, uh, it's a yeah, it's a great film. Uh, and um, if you watch that movie, believe it or not, when Susie Banyan, uh, this is the protagonist, this is the uh, Jessica Harper character, arrives in Germany from New York. Um, you'll get a glimpse of the uh, flight board at the airport, and she arrives from New York on flight 237, of all things. And the nexus to The Shining is, the contextual nexus is, she goes to this dance academy where she ultimately uncovers this coven of witches, uh, this diabolical coven of witches, um, hiding kind of in plain sight. Um, and it's ruled over by this very ugly uh, sort of deformed witch named Helena Marcos at the end. Um and of course, there's a nexus to this in The Shining, where uh, Jack stumbles into 237, uh, referencing perhaps Suspiria. Um, and what does he define? Well, he finds this very old, you know, decrepit, deformed, decaying witch-like entity um, in hiding inside the room. You know, this sort of Helena Marcos analog, as it were. So you will definitely see a contextual nexus between The Shining and uh, Argenta's Suspiria. And it's very likely it's possible that uh, Kubrick watched Suspiria and saw the number and, hey, you know, let's let's reference um, let's reference the movie. Uh, let's reference Suspiria and this older witch, uh, Helena Marcos, because we're going to have a Helena Marcos like entity in 237. Let's do that. Um, and then, of course, years later, you have Toby Hooper and uh, Steven Spielberg paying homage to Kubrick. Uh, in The Shining, in the movie Poltergeist, where when um, little little Carol Ann, uh, this is when the home is about to be invaded by the evil spirits. Uh, and of course, we all know the scene where she goes up to the TV screen and puts her the black and white TV screen. It's showing the static right. as she puts her hand on the screen and says, "They're here." Uh, the time on the TV screen is two three seven. It's two thirty seven a.m. That's a direct reference to Kubrick's The Shining. And again, we have contextual significance because The Shining is about a child in peril, Danny Torrance, and we have the same exact theme in Poltergeist of a child in peril with Carol Ann. So again, it's it's an appropriate nexus to forge between Poltergeist and The Shining uh, with the whole idea of a child in peril being placed in peril by supernatural forces. So, I mean, this is all linked. Um, and it just goes to show you, it's a fantastic example of how meticulous these filmmakers are into conveying these hidden references and homages to well, other things. Yeah, well, certainly the good ones are, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about, about occultism. Uh, there's a connection between Aleister Crowley and uh, Ian Fleming, of course, of James Bond fame. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've discussed this on other shows as well. Um, uh, 
master theoron Alistair Crowley uh, was a um, was in British intelligence during World War One and World War Two. Uh, and in World War Two, one of his handlers at, at, in British intelligence was none other than Ian Fleming, who, of course, went on to write the James Bond stories. Um, there's a great story with uh, with Crowley and Fleming when Rudolf Hess, who was Hitler's deputy, flew to flew to Scotland uh, on a botched peace mission. He was trying to broker peace between Great Britain and uh, the Third Reich. He was, of course, captured and thrown into the Tower of London. Crowley went to Fleming and tried to uh, wanted to interrogate Hess. Uh, it's well known that the high Nazi hierarchy, including Rudolf Hess, were fascinated by the occult astrology, things like that. And Crowley went to Fleming and said, hey, let me perform some ceremonial magic uh, in front of Hess and maybe we'll scare the hell out of this guy and uh, maybe get him to confess, talk to us a little bit about what the Nazis' uh, fascination with astrology is. Maybe we can uncover a weakness, as it were. And Fleming thought it was a great idea and uh, apparently went to Churchill with it, where it was eventually voted down. It was eventually never happened. Some people say it did, but uh, mainstream history say it never happened. But at any rate, there is a decided Aleister Crowley occult influence upon uh, Ian Fleming and the James Bond stories. I mean, we have to look no further. We look no further than the 007 symbol for James Bond, which is a reference to uh, an English spy master named Dr. John Dee, who was an Elizabeth, Elizabethan magus and uh, the court astrologer for Queen Elizabeth I. He was involved, Dee, that is, involved with a spy ring uh, to keep Queen Elizabeth I safe from the Jesuits and uh, extreme uh, Roman Catholic sympathizers. And he worked in secret with people like Sir Francis Walsingham, Sir Francis Drake, Walter Riley, Edward Kelly, Giordano Bruno, to sort of develop what I call a Rosicrucian spy ring uh, to keep Queen Elizabeth I safe. And um, he, when he would ever, whenever Dee would sign a correspondence uh, indicating, you know, an, an espionage correspondence, he would sign it 007 or 007. And the sigil was supposed to be eyeglasses. It was supposed to be it was two circles with a line over it and then a line down the side. It was designed to look like spy glasses or eyeglasses, symbolizing that he was her eyes in the field and or that the correspondence was for her eyes only. And, of course, this was taken up by Fleming when he developed James Bond, uh, you know, to use the symbol of John Dee, this very early Elizabethan spy master. So, of course, James Bond is 007, referencing John Dee, uh, Queen Elizabeth, one of Queen Elizabeth's the first spy masters. And again, when we get into the works of uh, Fleming with James Bond, I mean, we have the voodoo storyline in Live and Let Die. I mean, we have alchemy in Goldfinger. Um, I mean, we have the Hermes Trismegistus like wizard uh, in uh, M. I mean, you have the whole idea of the unification of the male and female, the Rosicrucian alchemical wedding, the unification of the sun and moon, where it's Bond and the Bond girl. They unify sexually. They form this union. This equips Bond spiritually to go on and defeat, you know, this this Illuminati-like supervillain, whether it be Ernst Stavro Blofeld, Goldfinger, Scaramanga, you know, Doctor, you know, Drax, Doctor No, insert whoever you want. Uh, so we definitely have this hermetic occult influence upon Fleming coming from the world of Aleister Crowley. Uh, irrefutable, no doubt about it. This is amazing stuff. Uh, we're going to have time for one more, and I want to talk about the foreshadowing of 9-11. You say that appears in a few films. Where's it oh, most yeah. Out? yeah, where's the show up? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, what's amazing about it is it shows up right before the event. Um, And I mean, not only that, it's synchronized uh, chronologically. Um, Probably the most the most infamous one is the one in the Matrix movie where Neo Anderson's this is Keanu Reeves. Um, his passport expires on September 11th, 2001. Um, and what's really kind of disturbing about that is the whole Matrix uh, movie is about sort of the death of the old age, awakening to consciousness. Many people have equated the 9-11 event of 01, uh, linking the death of the old age of Pisces to the coming new age of Aquarius. Uh, this is a theme that's hinted at um, in the Matrix movie. Um, we have the Fight Club movie, which I believe was released on September 10th, uh, 1999, uh, two years before, almost two years to the day of, of 9-11, where you have um, Tyler Durden referring to the collapse of the buildings at the end of Ground Zero, of the financial center at Ground Zero. You have the uh, reference to Operation Latte Thunder, which is the destruction of the sphere, um, which, which they blow up, which the space monkeys blow up. This is, of course, something you'll find in the World Trade Center Plaza which was eventually destroyed on 9-11. Um, in Fight Club, they destroy it, um, you know, as part of Operation Latte Thunder. And then two years before that, almost to the day, you have the um, the uh, Simpson episode, where it's Homer Simpson versus New York City, uh, or New York City versus Homer Simpson, I forget what the actual title is, where you have Bart waving up the money in front of the New York magazine that has 9-11 on it with the uh, World Trade Center. So those are just three examples that seem to be this countdown to it. Um, and then, of course, you have um, a television program. The pilot debuted in March of two thousand and uh, of uh, March in uh, two thousand and one. Uh, the Lone Gunman, which was the X Files spinoff, and the pilot episode involved the hijackers taking over commercial airliners and throwing them into crashing them into the World Trade Centers. Uh, this was a few months beforehand. Um, and then another one is the Patriot movie. That's always an interesting one with Mel Gibson, where at the very beginning of the movie, this was the summer of 2000, uh, he, he is carving a chair. And uh, he this is, again, at the very beginning of the movie. I think the opening credits are rolling. And he takes the chair and he weighs it. And he says the chair weighs nine pounds, 11 ounces, 9-11. And then he sits in it and it crashes. It comes crashing down. So we have this uh, lead up um, with all these little 9-11 references. Those are just a couple of them. There's more uh, that, that seem to be counting down to the 9-11 event. It's very, it's very disturbing. It's very uncanny. Um, I don't think it can be explained. Yeah, it certainly is a little unsettling. Um, I said that was going to be the last one, but I can't resist this. Again, from one horror fan to another, uh, t- tell me a little bit about The Exorcist. You said some of this shows up there as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. Um, yeah, I mean, you get, um, I mean, that's overloaded with uh, esoteric symbolism and themes. You have a very deep theme between light and dark, hot and cold, where the movie starts in the heat of the desert, ends in the frigid cold. Um, again, this is light and dark, uh, the death of the sun, the advent of winter. Uh, this all this has to do with the movement of the sun, uh, where it's strong in the, in the summertime into death in the winter, you know, when the demon comes out. Um, you know, it's frigid cold, you know, this is death. This is the death of the sun. Um, you have this hinted at in, in the exorcist where, um, it starts in the heat of the desert. And then when we get to Georgetown, um, the trick or treaters run by, uh, the little girl, or excuse me, by the actress. Uh, this is the Ellen Burstein character. This is a Chris McNeil. Um, that's of course, identifying the day of Halloween. And of course, Halloween is the midway point, uh, between the autumn equinox and the winter solstice when the sun, um, the sun is weakened and darkness is exalted. 
Hence, the demon, darkness, is allowed to wreak havoc in Georgetown and terrorize the little girl. Since the sun is in, since the sun, light is in death and decay, darkness is exalted. Hence, evil is given license to run freely. We see this exact same thing in the Shining movie. Kubrick uses the same mnemonic or the same occult device where the uh, Torrance family, where when, when Jack is being interviewed for the uh, job, the guy Ullman says, well, the operating hours of the hotel are from, I believe it's around the beginning of May to October 30th. So we know that the day the Torrance family is arriving, this is when everyone, all the staff is packing up and leaving, is Halloween. And again, it's the, it's the uh, psychological reference to the idea of the sun going into darkness, going into decay, winter is coming, death is dead, the light is dead, hence all the ghosts can come out and wreak havoc in the Overlook Hotel. Um, it's psychological. It has to do with the movement of the sun through the seasons. It's the ecliptic. Um, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm. And again, these filmmakers know how to do this, so they play on it very adroitly. The whole idea of the light, the death of the sun, hence the exaltation of darkness when all hell can break loose. Uh, Ari Aster uses this exact same thing in Midsommar. Same, same occult theme. This is amazing stuff. The books are uh, are available now. There's a third one coming out again. Cinema Symbolism, Cinema Symbolism 2, 3 is on the way. And once again, let folks know where they can get a hold of them, Rob. Yeah, absolutely, JV. Well, thank you for having me on the show tonight. It was my pleasure to be here. I thought it was terrific, and uh, I definitely will come back for a round two. Um, the easiest way to find me and find the books is just go to my website. Uh, my website is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan IV. So my website is just that. It's Robert W. Sullivan IV, the letter IV for the fourth.com. Links to purchase the books. They're on all the major online retailers. Information about me, information about upcoming shows I'm going to be on. Uh, links to follow me on social media, Twitter. I have a Facebook fan page. Um, the site is very easy to navigate. Uh, again, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. All the books are out now. You can get them in the Kindle or ebook form or the print edition if you want that instead. www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Terrific. And I will take you up on having you back because we only scratched the surface on both of the topics that we were exploring tonight. So thank you again. And we will have you back soon, Robert. Well, thank you again for having me on. I thought the show was uh, terrific and I look forward to returning. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. It's Beyond Reality. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.